Good morning, Third Street. Good morning. How y'all feeling? Blessed. Y'all feeling all right? It's okay that we get into the Word for a little bit? Yes, sir. Is it, anybody who, uh, is it anybody in here who genuinely wants to get into the Word of God? Is it anyone in here who wonders what, is, what it is for the Holy Spirit to reveal something to us in this text this morning? Or is it just me that's excited to be in the Word of God today? Is it anybody else with me? Just a couple people with me. Cool, 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 cool. Um, Well, let's pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll just jump right into it. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the opportunity to get into your scriptures. Lord, we know that even though these words were written a really long time ago, these are words that you and your Holy Spirit inspired to be written, to be recorded. And in the midst of an oral tradition, you told us plainly to write it down, to make it plain, so that the generations that could come would know and to be able to understand the Lord. God, we pray that in this time you would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you have to communicate. God, I pray that not a single one of us would leave this place this morning without knowing full well that the God of the universe and the creator of all things has spoken directly and intimately to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up. If you've been with us, you know that for the last, gosh, what's it been, like seven weeks or something like that, we've been in this series uh, in in the book of Philippians, this is Paul's prison epistle. This is a letter that he wrote uh, while he was while he was imprisoned. And this morning, this morning is kind of crazy, but this is it. This is the end. We close out the book. We close out the final chapter this morning. And so, whether you've been with us or you haven't, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. It's towards the back. We're in the fourth chapter. Chapter That's the final chapter. If you have your physical Bibles with you, go there now. If you have your electronic devices, you are confident in your God-given ability to fight off the temptation of the devil to stay off of Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, TikTok, and or all these other things. I encourage you to do so. Otherwise, my brothers and sisters, it'll be up on the screen for you. This is the book of Philippians chapter four. We're just reading a few verses in the final chapter today. We're starting in verse two. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, the Apostle Paul, the Gospel Globetrotter himself, writes it this way. He says, I urge Eudea and I urge Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again because I didn't believe that the people in the back caught it the first time. I said, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, hello, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. I've been playing a bit of 2K lately. Yeah, that's right. That's brand new information for some of y'all. 
Your pastor does occasionally like to indulge in a bit of in a bit of video games. It is what it is. NBA 2K23 has been calling my name lately. I've been I've been trying to trying to get my stats up, trying to live out a reality that I just wasn't blessed with in in all actuality. Right. I've been playing 2K, and one of the one of these things that happens when you when you play 2K, when you get into the fourth quarter, there's this there's this thing underneath underneath your player or whatever player has the ball. Uh, that's that that's a stamina bar. It's how much stamina. It's how much energy that this particular player has left. As you go throughout the game, you watch as player stamina drops. And there's this like painful real thing that you have to do. You have to like put players on the bench to try to like get their stamina's back up. They can't just make it to the fourth quarter, right? They can't just make it. It's just like real life. You got to you got to put them on a bench. And because what happens is it's just enough like reality that like if you don't take them out and you just try to play through that by the fourth quarter, this little like Gatorade sign appears next to their names because they like, yo, your boy's exhausted. Right. And what happens when your player gets tired in this game, what happens is they start to do things that are uncharacteristic to the player. They're a lot slower. Their shooting percentages drop and they make really dumb mistakes. And they do this in this game. And honestly, you could make this you could make this any game in any game. There's there's virtually there's a health meter. Some of it's more realistic than others. Let me give you a hint. You can't get shot eight times and your health still be at 50 percent. That's that's not as close to reality. Right. But in anything, there's a health meter on the character that you're playing. And they do this because it's meant to be a simulation that's based on reality. See, all of us have our own health meter. Maybe it's not sticking above our heads like a percentage. Maybe it's not underneath our names as as we walk across the floor, but we all have a health meter that the reality of what we're dealing with in our everyday lives drags down. And as our health meter gets drugged down by the things that we're dealing with, we tend to make some uncharacteristic mistakes. We tend to begin to do things that if we were at full health, we wouldn't do, and we slow down. We react differently in certain situations. We deal with stuff all day long that pulls our health down because we are living in the midst of chaos. Are me and Sly by ourselves this morning, or does anyone else feel the weight of living as a Christian in the midst of chaos. And so then we get to a passage like this one where Paul is concluding his instructions as if he hasn't, as if he hasn't really pounded some of these ideals enough. He gives us parting instructions and he's like, hey, on my way out the door, let me just give you one more thing. He's zooming back out. He's getting less specific. He's zooming back out to the reality that the Philippians are dealing with. And he's like, look, y'all, I know you're dealing with chaos. I know it's wild in the world around you. I know it's people that don't understand the way that you're trying to live. And so they got something to say. I know it's people that are trying to make you bend to the cultural norms that they would have for our society, our time, our day and age. I know it's people out here who not only aren't going to give you a space to dwell in the temple, but they're also not don't want you gathering in your own homes either. I know that it's chaotic to be trying to live as a Christ follower in the Roman world. And I believe that that transfers to us today. Paul knows 
that is chaotic to try to hold on to the truth of the gospel in the midst of our chaotic world. It is painful to try to see the hope of Jesus, the hope that only Jesus can, can, can make a reality in the midst of this chaotic world. And more importantly, more specifically to this passage, I would say it feels at times almost impossible to hold on to any type of peace in this chaotic world. Paul says, have peace. And I don't want you to read this as empty verses we like to strap on our Instagram pages. I want you to read this knowing that Paul was fully aware of the chaotic reality that the Philippians were dealing with, as he would be fully aware of the chaotic reality that we deal with. When he says that the peace of the Lord, which surpasses all understanding, will be with you. He starts his section on the believers having peace by calling out people by name. He's like, yo, Eudea, Sintichi, y'all know the sisters I'm talking about. Y'all too specifically. Imagine reading this letter. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, I want for all of you to do this. I want for all of you to do that. Hey, and you two specifically? Dre, Brad, specifically? Y'all two? I I see what y'all been up to. Right? Imagine somebody standing up here and saying, give God praise. Oh, you're not going to do it? Carly. (laughs) Corey. Imagine, right? Imagine being called out by name. Imagine 400 years later when this gets canonized and EUD, if she was still alive, was like, are you kidding me? The one time I get called out in class, it's going to be canonized and recorded forever. Forget my contributions to the advancement of the gospel. People are just going to remember that Paul called me out in chapter four. That's wild, but that's, that's how direct Paul's trying to be. He's like, look, I'm talking about you. If there's any doubt this morning that this is applicable to you, let me just tell you, Paul is talking to you. The spirit this morning wants to talk to you. And Paul writes, look, I need you guys to begin to agree. I need you to begin more appropriately to have a shared mindset with one another in the Lord. I love that he attaches in the Lord because it allows me to relieve myself of the pressure of I have to somehow find a way to see things the way that the person I'm conflicted with sees it. Listen, there are just realities that prevent us from seeing things sometimes the way the other side lives. And Paul's not saying I need you to see it From the other person's point of view, he's saying that I need you to be able to come to an agreement in the Lord. In other words, I need you to see it, not how you see it, not how they see it. I need you to see it how Christ sees it. Because as we talked about last week, the more we focus on a kingdom reality, the more we focus on eternal realities, the more we're able to kind of weigh through some of the things that are keeping us conflicted with one another. It's not that these things don't have to be solved. Paul did not let it go. Whatever this conflict was, and we don't know, Paul didn't let it go. He didn't say, hey, listen, let's just Jesus juke the situation and say, God loves everybody and keep it pushing. 
He's like, no, I need both of y'all to see this the way that Christ sees this. Because only when both of y'all see this the way that Christ sees this can we come to some sort of resolution. He says, come to an agreement in the Lord. I'm not saying you have to agree with the person that you're fighting with. I'm saying that you have to agree with the mindset of Christ. And the mindset of Christ is humble. The mindset of Christ is peaceful. The mindset of Christ is a peacemaker. I need you to come to to a shared mindset in the Lord. Because look, as he makes plain going on from there, he says, your names are recorded in the book of life. It's a, it's a reference. It's a callback on some, on some Old Testament jargon where he's saying that you're a part of God's story. You're not just a part of God's story. You're like a really, really integral part of God's story. And so I need your graciousness to be what's seen by other people because people who who have not found out yet that they've been grafted into the promises of the Lord are watching the way you behave to decide whether or not that's something they can see themselves be a part of. He's like, this is really important that y'all get this right. Because in the midst of fighting against Greco-Roman culture in so many ways, the Greco-Roman culture is watching you. They're watching to see all these two people call themselves Christian and now they're beefing. Let's see how this plays out. Because if it doesn't look any different than the way that they settle conflict, then what value is there? in seeing themselves a Christ follower. Paul, as if to just kind of offer a double-sided reminder, says the Lord is near. You can take that as an encouragement of like, and look, the ability that only the Spirit can provide to not knock your brother or sister out and to show graciousness instead is accessible and readily available to you. Or you could also hear it as, the Lord is near. The time is near. So y'all better get this right because we don't got time to be quabbling over some petty stuff. It's souls out here that don't know Jesus and y'all two lovers and believers want to be in here talking about these petty differences. The Lord is near. We don't got time. We lose people every single morning. People are further and further away from a reality of Christ, a kingdom reality, every single day. And y'all want to talk about musical preferences. I don't have time. I, I just don't. Jesus is pretty clear on this as well. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous he's ever preached, he says, so if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there, while you're offering said gift, I love you, God. I praise you, God. Here's my offering, oh God. Oh, shoot. I'm beefing with Chris. He says, if you remember in the midst of offering your gift to God, that Somebody has something against you? What does Jesus say? Close your eyes. Keep offering that gift and pretend like it isn't there. 
He says, it would be better for you to leave that gift at the altar. It would be better for you to commit the cardinal sin against your rabbi by interrupting his service, by getting up and leaving in the middle of it all to go settle it than it is for you to sit here and act like everything's Gucci. He says, first go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come offer your, offer your gift. Don't come up in here acting like it's okay. Don't come up in here acting like God's gonna be like, nah, it's cool, you don't need to be friends with them. Let's just, let's just keep it right here with me. Don't come up in here knowing that you did somebody wrong and expecting God to just cover it up while you have yet to forgive the person that you're holding something against. He says, it's better for you to go reconcile that situation and then come in here, interrupt the service and everything. Then it is for you to act like nothing's going on. Paul says it another way. Just like he said in Philippians, he says it to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, that's a key statement, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably among all people. As, as far as it is up to you, listen, it's some people that just ain't going to get there, right? It's some people that just want to hold anger against you. You can't control what they do, but you can give what you got to the Holy Spirit, right? You can let the, go, the Holy Ghost work in your life. You can afford to live peaceably amongst all people. You can't control what anger somebody has against you, but you can absolutely control the unforgiveness that you hold in your heart towards somebody else. Amen. He says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We can't have peace in our hearts. Pastor, what on earth? I thought you said we were going to, you, you talked about peace. I thought you were going to make me feel better. Now you're talking about people that I'm mad at. Listen, we can't have peace in our hearts with God. And live in conflict with others. Amen. I think I hate to say it because this has oh, this has annoying realities for me as well. But we cannot live in peace and have conflict with others. Scripture is pretty clear that it's not possible. Paul is pointing out that we've been included in a story that is so much greater than the vengeance we so desperately want. We've been included in a story that's so much greater, so much bigger than the very petty or very real things we're conflicted about. And he wants to remind us that people are watching the way we handle this stuff. I mean, let's just keep it real. Whenever something happens... We're watching the Grammys, we're watching the Oscars, we're watching something happen on TV, a live event. Where do we go? We run to Twitter. Something crazy pops off and we're like, I wonder what people are saying about this on Twitter. If you don't think the same is true, believers, about the way that you handle life, if you don't think unbelievers are watching you to see how you handle conflict in the world, you're tripping. You're wrong. You are incorrect. It's not right. People are watching the way that you handle these things. You are setting tone for other people sometimes without even knowing it. And so we are to let our graciousness be known to everyone. Not, our, not the stuff that we hold against people. Not our opinions, our fleshly ones. Not the ones we haven't prayed out yet. We are to let our graciousness be known to everyone. We are to see the world be impressed with the grace 
that we're able to offer people. Not impress the world by how often we win. Not impress the world by how often we are right. Not impress the world with our ability to win a debate. That one was just for me. I'm still sorry, Blake. I'm still sorry. (laughs) Paul's reminding us there's no time to live any other way. There's no time. And sometimes reconciliation isn't possible, and it has nothing to do with you. I hear that. I know that. But as long as your heart is conformed to Christ's heart, as long as you're being humble, as long as you're being patient, as long as you're being kind, as long as insofar as it is possible to you, you are living peaceably, then that is acceptable. As long as it is you who is loving them, praying for them, living peaceably among them, then we can and will overcome. Then he says, once you've settled conflict, then you're ready to get into this next part that we love to use, abuse, and misquote. Paul says, don't worry about anything. Don't you worry about a thing. Baby. He says, don't worry. Where does worry come from? Worry is a state of anxiety. It's a state of anxiety when we dwell on actual or potential problems. I didn't write that. Google did. But what Paul is trying to get us to realize through the entire context of this section is that Because he uses this word worry in other contexts to say that you should be concerned about things. You should be concerned about your brothers and sisters that are in the body of Christ. You should be concerned about the things that concern Christ. You should be concerned about the orphans and the widows. You should be concerned about the poor and the oppressed. You should be concerned to heal the sick. So it's not about the intensity of the concern. It's about the object of the concern. Right? He says don't worry. Don't allow yourselves to reach a state of anxiety over problems that may or may not be actually occurring. See, a lot of us, I feel like we get to the state of worry when we realize that we're overwhelmed by the fact that whatever we're facing far exceeds the resources that we have accessible to us to deal with that thing. We realize that there's something in front of us that I genuinely can't do something about, and I don't know what I would even do about that, our minds begin to spiral. And the dangerous thing is they can even spiral to a place because when we spiral in in anxiety, when we spiral in worry, the, 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 the reason that Satan loves to use this stuff so much is because it helps us forget our theology. It helps us forget the fact that we know God is good, that we know that God loves us, that we know God rescues us. And so we convince ourselves to be in a place that God is mad at us. Can I just tell you something for free this morning? I don't know who it's for, but I hope it's for you. God ain't mad at you. 
God is not mad at you. God is not punishing you. God is not holding something against you. God is not dangling a carrot. God is not trying to rip you apart. God is not trying to break you down. God is trying to save you. Paul says the way that we overcome this worry, he says, I need you to go to prayer, right? I'm not talking about like, (laughs) I'm not going to insult you. I'm saying make the space for him. I'm talking about create the environment for open communication with the Lord. He says through prayer, creating the space for a connection with God, that's prayer, and petition which is something apparently that's separate. He says, make the space for connection with God and then petition. In other words, recognize our own limits, recognize his limitlessness and talk about it. Acknowledge the fact that this situation I'm in far exceeds what I'm capable of dealing with and yet it is small to him. A lot of us so deeply are like holding on and burying. I don't know if you come from that childhood. I come from that childhood where we don't talk about it. We just shove it in the trunk. But eventually it's so many bodies in the trunk that unless you drive in a Buick, they coming out. Ain't no boat holding all this guilt and shame. We stuff it. We shove it. They don't understand. They won't like me anymore. They won't want to deal with me. Nobody else has been through this. They don't understand. And we push it down. And remember that health meter I was talking about? And then we wonder why we start getting mad at everybody, why we start lashing out, while our patience with our kids is just a little bit too short. It's because we're stuffing it. We're shoving it down. Now, I'm not saying give your worry the keys to the car and let it drive either. I ain't going there. But it don't belong in the trunk, you see. It belongs in petition with God. It belongs in a connection with him that says, I can't do it, Jesus. And yet I have read that I am able to in you take heart for you have overcome the world. So, Jesus, help me. When worry sets in and our minds spiral, we need to let God into that space. We need to let him know because, can I tell you another theological secret? He already knows. Parents, you might understand this one. You know what your kid is going through, but you know that you're not just going to broach that subject with them. Sometimes you sit back and you wait for them to bring it to you, even though you see it bothering them the whole time. That's a parent. That's the role God, God already knows. It's riddled all over our hearts. He knows. We think we're hiding it well. We're not. We think we figured out how to make up over it. We haven't. God knows and he wants you to bring it to him. He wants you to bring it to him because He wants to, in turn, what's to say he's going to do? Give you peace. Peace that reasons and logic set away? No. 
peace that makes it all make sense? I wish, guys. I wish. But peace that surpasses all of that finite thinking. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that surpasses any logic that we could deal with. Peace that surpasses any emotion we can handle. Peace that surpasses any story we could write. It's this like supernatural joy that we just like, I didn't even realize. I can breathe. Here I thought I was drowning and he just picked my head up. David embodies this well in the Psalms. This is a practice that I personally have gotten into lately because I've been, I've been open and honest with you guys a lot about my own dealings with mental health and things like that. And so, so one of the practices that I've, that I've come to is, you know, I've acknowledged the fact that like our triggers aren't necessarily always going to change, right? In fact, I would just say that less nicely. I don't think they're ever going to change, right? But our patterns of behavior in response to our triggers can. And so I've been trying to like rework my brain to like when I start to feel these waves as anxiety, rather than get up and pace like I'm on the phone, I, I instead, oh, you guys don't do that. That's just me. All right, fine. <laughs> Instead, I go directly to the Psalms. You know why? Like, it's only been within the last few years of my life that I've truly started to appreciate the Psalms, but the Psalms are real as heck. Like, they're raw. Like, David says it, bro. Like, if you're ever looking for somebody that you're just like, I just want somebody real. I just want you to talk to me like a normal person. Go read David, because he's like, yo, God, it really feels like you ain't fooling with me right now. It really feels like you left me alone. It feels like you told me you was going to be right back. You was just going to go get a carton of milk. And that was 13 years ago. That's how it feels right now. He says it plain. I love reading the Psalms because he gives us a great idea of what it means to petition to God. He says in Psalm 13, how long will I store up anxious concerns within me? How long am I going to have anxiety? He says, how long am I going to have agony in my mind every day? David may have been a free man, but he was in prison in his mind. He said, how long will my enemy dominate me? He's in a cave. Because if he goes out of the cave, somebody's going to kill him. How long, Lord? Consider me. Answer me. Restore brightness to my eyes. David is depressed. Says, I will, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've triumphed over him and my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. That's real. Yes, sir. That's so real, so raw. And it's in the Bible, which is wild. But then David pulls back a truth. He pulls back a piece of peace that surpasses the understanding he has of this situation where right after that he says, I have trusted in your faithful love. God, you got me this far. I remember once upon a time I was shoveling sheep turds and now says, I remember my humble beginnings. Some of y'all forgot, but I remember where I came from and God got me here. He said, I remember your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance because I acknowledge that, Lord, you and you alone are a deliverer. What's the worry you need to leave with God? 
I see it on some of y'all's faces. Don't worry, your neighbor can't see it, but I can because I'm looking at you. What's the worry you need to leave with God? Because he wants it. He can handle it. And do you know what he has in response for it? See, our spiraling anxious minds allow us to think that he has punishment. Our spiraling anxious minds allow us to, 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 to think that he has vengeance and justice to give back to us. As if this is some type of admission of guilt in a courtroom. That's the way we deal with our anxiety and our worry. But what's promised all throughout Scripture and made explicit in Paul's letter to the Philippians is that what he has for us in return is peace. Peace. What's the worry that you need to leave with God? Then Paul concludes his section. He says, finally, Paul says, I got one last thing to say and then I'm out your way. He lists virtues. He says, be focused Consider, he says, consider what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. I said, Paul, I think you got mixed up, bro. Aren't you the one that wrote the fruits of the Spirit? I think you forgot what you wrote. No, he's taking what are Greco-Roman virtues. He's taking virtues that the culture has told the believers in Philippi that they need to embody. He says, now that I've told you all of these things about Christ... I want you to consider these things in light of Christ. I want you to consider all things that you are after in light of Christ. I want you to consider all the things that you've been told to be, all the ways you've been taught to deal, all the ways that you've been taught to practice and instruct. I want you to consider all of these things in light of Christ. He's replacing the focus of our minds from this cultural model that everyone but God tells us we need to be and replaces it and refixes it on this idea of the gospel, hope, joy, love, and peace that only Christ tells us we can be. He's trying to change our mindsets all through this letter and finally in conclusion here to, be, to have a gospel-informed mindset. And combine that with gospel-infused discipline and practice in our everyday life. And he says, as a result, then the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, consider not the things that keep our minds anxious and worried. Consider the things of God. Consider the things, all things, from an eternal perspective. We talked a bit about that last week. Consider the things of God. Take back with you. Leave the worry at his feet. Take back with you the truth that we know God is capable of. Take back with you the promises that he's made since thousands of years before any of us were even a thought. Take back with you the promises of God. I think specifically on what would have given David the confidence 
to step to such a giant? What would have given David the audacity to believe that these five little stones would take down what an army of men could not take down unless he remembered that God promised that those who oppose him will be stoned to death? Then these rocks have a little bit more significance. I think of the boldness that the disciples must have had the next time they were out on their boat and were facing unsure waters, yet they remembered the time that Jesus was asleep in the bowels of the ship and they came to him with his worry. They came to him with their anxiety. They came to them with their concern, their real-time fear for their livelihood and said, Jesus, we ain't gonna make it. You gotta wake up and do something. Here you are asleep in the bowels of the ship. We're up here wrestling with a whole storm and Jesus says, peace. What confidence the disciples must have had. What confidence they must have had the next time they encountered somebody's daughters who'd been sick so long that even the doctors are riddled and like, maybe you should just move out of the village because we don't know what's wrong with you. And they come to him with concern and they're like, heal my daughter. What confidence they must have had when they think back on the time that they tried to cast out a demon and it couldn't happen. And then Jesus pops up and this girl's dad was like, yo, your boys couldn't handle it. I think you can. I want to believe. I need you to help my unbelief, though. And they watch Jesus heal this little girl. What confidence they must have had seeing Jesus put this little girl mind at peace. What confidence what confidence we can have knowing that the Savior who calls for our worry and anxiety to be cast onto him has seen the greatest measure of burial. The greatest obstacle that not a one of us in this room will overcome and that is death. What confidence and peace we must have knowing That even death, the finality, the destruction, the certainty in our finite minds of death, that even death could not defeat our Savior. That for three days the world was dark because they thought, wow, even death, death even gets a great person like Jesus. How dark those three days were. Thinking. That culture had once and for all canceled Jesus. But on that third day, some would say early Sunday morning, the stone of finality was rolled away. That what was experienced in the tomb that was meant to be permanent found out to itself it was only temporary as the power of the Spirit of God resurrected, picked up our Savior, Jesus Christ. What confidence and peace we must have knowing 
that all circumstances that our minds have told us will lead to our certain destruction, what confidence and peace we must have. When we tell our minds, when we tell our enemy, not today, Satan, because my Savior lives. Because resurrection, the comeback, the bounce back from even this, and yes, even you, possible peace church we have permission from God to live at peace you're allowed it is for you Some of us have been wrestling with conflict for so long that we've just resolved that this is just the way we're going to live until God calls us all home. That's exactly right. The devil is lying to you. God has for you peace. But there's some things we got to do to get there. Church, we got to let go of this conflict. And I ain't just talking about with your family, with your coworkers, with your classmates at school. I'm talking about right here within these own walls. Whatever it is. I don't even know about it. Maybe I do. We got to let it go. Conform our minds not to rightness. Conform our minds not to winning. Conform our minds to the attitudes and the mindsets of Christ. Watch the conflict melt away. Secondly, then we're ready to deal with our worry. That belongs not in our hearts. That belongs not in our minds. Paul would have for us to know that God did not give us that spirit of fear. That God did not have for us to have panic attacks in the middle of of the night. That God did not intend for us to be weighed down with depressing, anxious thoughts. That that is not God's intention for you. That he is not doing that to you. That he does not even want that for you. And that the concerns and the reality of those things belong only at his feet. And he's inviting you to leave them there and to take back with you instead the mind, the attitude, the truth, the promises, the reality of peace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are for us. God, we thank you that while we were riddled in sin, in bondage to depression, fear, anxiety, that you you saw humanity worth rescuing. God, we thank you that you would go to the greatest lengths of all, the lengths of sacrifice, of crucifixion and death to bring back to life a reality that you hope for all of us, and that is peace. Lord, we know that the way we deal with things is on display for the rest of the world, that as cruel, as mean, 
as cocky and boisterous as the rest of the world and our culture may seem, the reality is they too are looking for hope. And God, we know that you have instilled it in Christ's body, the church, to be the light of it, to be the one that shows the world what hope, peace, joy, love, compassion truly looks like. But God, we are worried. We're scared. We're depressed. And Lord, we pray. We pray for forgiveness for the ways that we've held on to these things. We pray for forgiveness for maybe some of the decisions that we made to get us here that the enemy wants to remind us of daily. But God, we pray in confidence that you will turn your shining face towards us. We pray in confidence that you invite our petition. Lord, brighten our eyes. Restore our joy. Give us the strength to leave worry at your feet. Not theoretically, not existentially, not tomorrow, but right now. God, we trust your spirit to guide us, not into deeper spirals, not into further temptation, not into greater evil. We trust your spirit to guide us into deliverance. Help us today, Lord, to take back control of our minds and our hearts as you have promised the Holy Spirit is capable of helping us do. Help us take back control to refocus our minds on that which is eternal on the promises and the truth that you have relayed to us in scripture, in inspiration, in experience, and ultimately in the person and the body of Jesus Christ. We pray these things hopefully, joyfully, confidently in the mighty name that rose from the dead, making it all possible. And that is Jesus. All who believe say, bless up.